Thank you, choir. In this first chapter to the Colossians, Paul has had a great deal already to say about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is wondrous and marvelous the things that he has said. He said, for instance, in verses uh, 16 through 19, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then he states the truth that is developed in our text for this morning. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself might come to have the preeminence, first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. Having set the great firstborn of creation in his absolute completeness, in his uncreated and unshared glory and splendor above all others and above all things, he now reveals another facet to the glorious mystery of the gospel. That is, that our hope, the hope of glory, is Jesus Christ himself living his life in us. The grandest of all secrets is the gospel in all of its purity and simplicity. It is the mystery of mysteries, and it was utterly unknown to the mass of mankind. It was utterly unknown to the enemy of God, and it was only vaguely seen and understood by any of those who were among his chosen people to whom the Old Testament scriptures were given. There is something very uh, worthy of note in the Gospels. And it is that the devil and his demons never acknowledge the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to trace his ministry through the Gospels, you were to see his encounters with Satan. You would see him meeting and addressing and dealing with the demonic spirits that entered into and oppressed people. When they addressed him, they addressed him by his divine titles. The demons called him the Holy One of God. And others of his titles in his godness as the second member of the Holy Trinity. But they did not acknowledge his humanity. I suspect that the most frustrating era that any group of beings has ever known was the period of time between the coming of Christ into flesh, the incarnation when he was born, to Resurrection Day when they did not know what God was up to. 
It was a mystery. It was veiled. It was a secret. A secret that could never have been known unless God Himself had chosen to reveal it to us. Mankind has worshipped from the very beginning. One of the most phenomenal things about the history of the 20th century is the discovering of the lost peoples that have been lost to the world at large for a decade, for centuries, some of them for thousands of years. And in virtually every one of the newly discovered peoples, there is an awareness that there was a Creator. There is usually a tradition about a flood that destroyed life on the earth. There is almost always a tradition about a book that has been lost and about a Redeemer who would come. But it was hidden as to the details of it. And it would never have been revealed if God had not chosen to reveal it. In all of these thousands of years, not one people on the earth, the undiscovered peoples nor the wisest, most highly educated and sophisticated peoples had ever thought that the solution that God would take was the one which He did, in fact, take. It was born in the mind of God. It is of no use to an individual unless his eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. I refer you to John 6.37 and to John 6.44 where Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. The gospel is common today and often it is undervalued. I am afraid that those of us who identify so readily and so proudly with the Lord Jesus and with the church unwittingly, unintentionally almost take to ourselves editorial privileges of the Scriptures. If we like something, if we understand it, we take it. If we don't like it, if we don't understand it, we reject it. But that's not part of the deal. The deal is, He's Lord and we're not. It is His Word. There is nothing in Scripture that indicates that you or that I will ever understand everything that's there. Much less than that is there a suggestion that if I don't understand it, I must reject it. Rather, it is all His Word. It is guaranteed that as any of us get serious about our relationship to God and our knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, we will routinely and regularly run into things that we do not understand. But that's okay. Moses told us a long time ago, and he told the, the people of Israel, that the hidden things belong to the Lord. It is the things revealed, he went on to say, that belong to us and to our children. If you 
allow yourself to be consumed with the things that you do not understand and with your doubts and with your uncertainties about the faith, about the scriptures, about Christian living, whatever it is, you will be miserable. But if you will just focus on the things that are plain and clear and trust the unseen, the unknown, and the ununderstandable into the hands of a loving and sovereign God who sent His Son to die in your place, your life will be wonderful. Paul says that Christ Himself personally is our hope. Nothing else, no one else. And in the passage before us, Colossians 1, 24 to 29, I want you to look with me at the text. The message will simply develop from these verses. First of all, in verse 24, here is what I have characterized by calling it the glory of hope. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He uses the term afflictions. He talks about sufferings. He talks about that which come behind, comes behind. And the words that he uses for suffering and affliction are words that mean uh, trouble, temptation, persecution. It, they are words that refer generally uh, to unpleasant experiences. I think it is almost a certainty that many, if not most Christians, really have no idea how closely the Christian is related to Christ. To be sure, we are dead and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. But Paul talks like this, that for Paul to suffer is for Christ to suffer because He is in us. Service for the Lord always involves distress and pain because that is the nature of the service. That is part of the cost. Paul rejoices in the midst of his because he knows it is to the benefit of the church and that it is in the will of God. What a daring thought Paul gives us in this passage. To be sure, Christ has died for the church. But in the building up of the church, in the extension and the expansion of the church, we have what he terms a glorious privilege of suffering as Christ suffered, of being treated as he was treated. As the church expands, it must be kept strong. It must be kept pure. 
it must be kept from error. And as it is, we share in his sufferings. To suffer in the service of Christ is not a penalty. It is a privilege and an honor. For by doing this, we share in his work, as Paul did, and it is to the benefit of the church. Paul would seem to say here, and in the entire book of 2 Corinthians, which we will continue studying at 5.15 this afternoon for an hour, uh, by the way, in our winter Bible study, here and in 2 Corinthians, Paul would seem to say that if our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ stops short of suffering, then it is defective and it is incomplete. And that is not a very novel thought. For the Lord Jesus said, the servant is not greater than the master. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. And it was certainly the experience of the New Testament church, an experience that is being modeled more and more in the 20th century as it comes to a close in the United States. That to be identified closely with the truth of the gospel will be to know pain and suffering. Now he talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let me state plainly what he does not mean. He is not saying that anything we experience or could ever experience will add one ounce of benefit to our own salvation. Literally, the Greek says, I fill up what is left behind what comes behind of the sufferings of Christ. What he is saying is that when a Christian is persecuted, Christ is persecuted. That we, through his presence in us, will know the same kind of treatment that he knew. When the Apostle Paul himself was converted, as recorded in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, when the voice of the Lord spoke, Jesus said to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? The Lord Jesus, by his own lips, as he spoke audibly to Paul, said, when you persecute my people, you persecute me. Here is the glory of hope. It is a glorious hope indeed, Christ within us and the privilege of knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. I refer you to Philippians 3, verses 10 to 13. Now in verse 25, he talks about the gift of leadership. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Now there are two important things stated in the verse. The first is that Paul, as a missionary pastor-teacher, 
was a minister. Secondly, that he was given by the Lord a stewardship. Now, the term minister is the word diakonos. If it sounds vaguely familiar, it is because from the noun form of diakonos, we get the term deacon. We are, as you have read, if you've opened your Sunday bulletin, beginning a process of of identifying and uh, setting aside for service additional men to serve as deacons. The word deacon, most of you know and have probably heard, was the common designation for one who waited on tables. Indeed, in Acts 6, when the first deacons were set aside for service, their specific responsibility was literally waiting on tables. It was the distribution of food to widows. But that's not what the word means. The word diakonos, and it is applied to the act of ministry throughout the New Testament, whoever is engaged in it. It is not the province of pastors. It is not the province of people we call deacons or other leaders in the church. It is the work of ministry to which all of us are called. The word diakonos is a compound word. Two words in one. The first part of it, dia, is a preposition. It means through. The second word means dirt. Now that's graphic, isn't it? Ministry as a verb is described as that which takes place through the dirt. As a noun. It describes one. Paul identifies himself as one, as a minister, whose work is through the dirt. Being a deacon is not an honor. It is a privilege. It is not an office. It is not personal recognition. It is not... Uh, to be based on anything other than the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and it is not a position, it is a job. We're fresh out of positions. we got lots of jobs that need to be done. And it is through the dirt. Though we have put a capital D on it, one of the reasons why that work is so demanding is because we allow them to be designated hitters for us. We allow them to take our turn at bat often. Indeed, it is the, uh, the plan clearly given to us over and again in the Scriptures that all of us alike share in the dirty work of ministry to those who need it. Now, the other term is stewardship. And Paul says... He was given the stewardship by the Lord to exercise on behalf of the church. Stewardship is a very precise term. The steward was a title well known in the the Roman world. The steward was the highest ranking slave 
in his master's house. All the other slaves reported to him, he reported to the master. He was given responsibility, but not ownership. He was accountable. Others were accountable to him. He was accountable to the Lord. He held in trust what belonged to someone else. That is a picture of ministry from one who exercises it as a pastor teacher. God holds us as pastors responsible. You know, we all know the experience that we earned early and learned early in life of making excuses, of giving explanations, of rationalizing, hoping others would accept the rationalizations of why we did what we did. But listen, save yourself a lot of trouble. It won't work with the Lord. He knows the truth. It is a a major responsibility. It is a heavy responsibility. And sometimes it requires that the steward become involved in ways with uh, things he'd rather not be involved in because the responsibility, the accountability flows across his path. Paul knew that weight. During 20 years of his productive travels, a, no doubt a steady stream of correspondence flowed from his pen. Many times he went without sleep. Many times he was uh, beaten. He was imprisoned. But he kept going until the very end because he had been given a stewardship. You know, that is a far cry from the attitudes that sometimes develop uh, in vocational ministry, in people like me, and in lay ministry, in people like you. It is a far cry from the attitude of ownership that sometimes develops. We need to always be aware that everything we have is not ours, it is His. And no responsibility within the church is ours. It is a trust that we hold for Him. The task is administration. Steward literally means manager of the house. And he identifies a major feature of that stewardship as fully preaching the Word of God. Everything else is secondary to the preaching of the Word of God. In everything that we do, in our Sunday school, in our outreach, in our fellowship, in our worship, in everything that we do, the Lord places at the center of it all the mystery as it has been revealed in His Word. Then notice in verses 26 and 27, here is the great hope. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but has now been manifested or made known to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of 
this, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery could be known only by revelation. God chose to reveal it. The essence of the task given Paul by God is to bring to men the knowledge of the mystery that has now been revealed in the gospel. It is the essence of the ministry. Paul used the word ministry widely in a number of his letters, and he always combined it with a word that, ha that meant something like uh, letting the cat out of the bag. And I believe that he is contrasting it with the so-called mystery religions that were prominent in Greece and Asia during this time which said the mystery could be revealed only to a few and then only under special circumstances. But Paul said God has gloriously opened the mystery and that by the proclamation of the gospel, the light of the revealed mystery would come to those who were in darkness. Hope is joyous anticipation, and it is ours. Glory will be ours when we dwell with Christ in eternity. Unregenerate man, unenlightened, undrawn, unin, uh, unilluminated man cannot understand the gospel. Do not ever believe that you can by reason and persuasion and the force of logic, and by the way, nothing is more logical than the gospel. You don't have to worry about that. But do not believe that because it is logical, you will ever be able to persuade anybody into the kingdom. People can very easily at times be persuaded of the truth without coming to the Lord. And that is a terrible thing because it gives a false sense of security. No one can come to the Father until the Holy Spirit has opened the heart so that the gospel can be understood, accepted, and responded to. That is the gospel. You know, that's why when you witness, you don't need to be afraid if you don't have your presentation letter perfect. The power of the gospel is not in your presentation. It is in the content of the gospel. You don't need to defend it. You don't need to polish it. You don't need to dress it up. You don't need to find a better way to say it. You just need to put it out there. Jesus described the work of scattering the gospel, of taking it to the world as a sower in the plowed field going out to scatter the seed so that the seed might grow and ultimately the harvest might come. Scatter the seed wherever you go. The mystery began to be unfolded when Christ came. It was unfolded more when He was crucified. It was made a little clearer when He was resurrected and when He ascended, but there are multiple levels of glorious meaning that we shall never see until we reign with Him in glory. 
But notice that the essence of the ministry is Christ Himself. It is His glory, His riches. He is the mystery. It was the omnipotent omniscience of God Himself who had to suggest to us that the infinite God could become a human infant. That the Ancient of Days could become a child. That the Prince of Peace would become a man of sorrows. The Gospel cannot be preached without Christ. Just as there is no day without a sun, there is no river without water, there is no body without a head. Christ is the life, the soul, the substance, and the essence of the mystery. Christ on board guarantees the safety of the ship. Christ in your heart, Christ in your home, Christ in you, Christ accepted by faith, Christ possessed, experienced, reigning in your heart, filling you with His presence. When iron is shaped into useful things, the mass of iron must be put in the fire until the fire fills the iron, and when the iron is full of fire, the iron can be shaped. Christ in you is fire in you. It allows Him to form you into His image. It is power in you. None of us has or ever will, this side of glory, have all of Christ in all of His fullness. But all can come to Him and be filled with a sense of His presence. Notice in verses 28 and 29, here is the great motive. And we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works in me. The great motive is that Christians might grow in knowledge, in maturity, in their relationship with the Lord. The gospel may seem simple, but it is more profound than anything else in the world. All should learn. Paul focuses attention on Christ. As we learn, we learn from Him. We learn of Him. We learn about Him. Paul saw the danger that the church at Colossae and likewise other churches might be affected by false doctrine as error was taught. And though no one is without the need of correction and growth, what Paul wants to accomplish is to close the gap between what we are and what we should be. The Christian life is not a quest for the Holy Grail. It is not a seeking after something unattainable. 
It is a moving in the right direction. I like the way someone has described the will of God as saying the journey is the destination. No one, until we go to be with the Lord, will be completely like Him. He does not expect that. You must never let the enemy weigh you down with guilt because you are not everything that you could be. But you must ever be conscious that you must move in the right direction. Paul describes Christian growth and Christian maturity, as did the Lord Jesus, as the growth in the animal kingdom. First the seed, then the sprout, then the stalk, then the leaf, then the bloom, then the fruit. A growing from the seed to the fullness of the plant. And so it is not that you polish every detail and become flawless. It is rather that you move in the right direction that is most significant. Paul's aim is intensely practical. It is to grow Christians. And it is his feeling, and I wholeheartedly agree, that only God can grow a strong Christian. But that as we hear his voice through his word, as we interact with his people, drawing strength and encouragement, giving strength and encouragement from others to others, it is as we do that that he produces in us the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses a word that indicates hard physical labor when he talks about striving according to his power, which works in me. It is wearisome labor in many ways, but the power comes from him. The victory is certain because it is His presence and His victory that make the difference. All true ministry is centered on the objective of helping people become more like Christ. This world is full of good things that need to be done. But there are people standing in line to do nearly all of them. The church has one task. It is to spread the gospel, to bring people into the family, and to help them become what God wants them to be. Anything that does not contribute to that objective needs to be left to someone else. Now that objective can be met and addressed in many, many ways. But we need to remember and always move in the direction that the main thing is the main thing. It is the gospel as revealed in the Word of God. And Paul says that Christ in you is the only hope, not only the glorious hope. Anything short of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior 
will leave you without salvation. That's why often activity is unsatisfying. It must be Christ Himself that we celebrate, not His blessings. Nothing but the Lord Jesus in His presence will still your heart, will meet your needs, will provide the deepest longings, will provide for them to be met. How do we experience that? We begin by humility. You know, the Lord Jesus and Paul like to talk about dirt. Diakonos means through the dirt. Humility is a compound word, and the meaning of humility as a concept applied to what you think about yourself is to consider one's self dirt. All of the goodness, all of the beauty, anything that is noteworthy, anything that is useful, anything that is good is the product of His presence in us. It is tragic when Christians begin to believe the things other people say about them. We need always remember that apart from the undeserved, unsought, sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us would be damned for eternity to hell. In the fall, mankind lost all of his goodness. There is no divine light in the unregenerate. There is only darkness. All of the light, all of the beauty, all of the glory is His. We are to be humble. We are to be clean. We are to be aware of our emptiness. The Lord Jesus said, those who understand the emptiness will be filled. And we are always to rejoice. He will not dwell where He is not Lord. Desire Him, seek Him, and you will be filled. When you have the Lord Jesus Christ within you, you have heaven within you. He is our hope. He is the glory. I leave the last word this morning to Charles Spurgeon who said, let men see who it is that lives in you. Let Jesus speak through your mouth, weep through your eyes, and smile through your face. Let Him work with your hands and walk with your feet. Let Him be tender through your heart. Let Him seek sinners through you. Let Him comfort saints through you until the day breaks and all the shadows flee forever. May we pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful I am for the fact that you have condescended to love us, to provide a way that we could come into your arms 
and into your heart to dwell with you forever. Father, we are not worthy and we understand that. How I pray that the truth of the gospel